Support for the Source podcast comes from UT Health San Antonio, South Texas' largest academic research institution, where what is discovered in its labs translates into life-changing patient care. More at groundbreakingresearch.org. Live from the John L. Santico studio, this is The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla, in for David Martin Davies. Have you ever lied awake at night in agony, unable to sleep? Maybe you're going through a breakup, someone you love has died, or you're a long-time insomniac. And all you can think about is how you have work in the morning and you're not going to bring your best self. Well, today's author, Annabelle Abstreets, is no stranger to this feeling. She just wrote a book called Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self. And Annabelle, I'm so glad to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Kayla. So if you, for our listeners, if you want to share your experience with your sleepless nights and what that's like for you, or if you have a question for our guest today about how she's become empowered through these restless nights, call in at 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. You can also email us at thesource at tpr.org. So... Annabelle, the description of your father's death in your book is just so surreal. And this was a moment that started this journey of finding meaning when you can't sleep. And so for our listeners who haven't read your book yet, could you tell us about that moment when you learned of your father's death and the days that followed? Sure. The, um, well, his, his death came in a sort of trio of deaths. Uh, the first of all, my stepfather died. Then a couple of weeks later, my father died. And then a couple of weeks later, our puppy died. So we had this, uh, this, these three deaths sort of in a very short space of time. And although one of them was sort of expected, my stepfather was, he was quite ill. Uh, the other two, of course, were complete shocks. And I think what we really struggled with was the, you know, the, the sudden intensity of grief three lots of grief in one sort of one little period of time, which was over Christmas. And also the, the shock, the, the, you know, the lack of preparedness. I think that there are different sorts of deaths. All deaths are you know, very distressing, but I think sometimes there are slow, long deaths where the, the, person who is, the person who is left behind sort of has time to adjust and to acclimatize and to almost, almost sort of imagine how it might be but when you lose someone very suddenly and very unexpectedly, um, yeah, you go into a sort of state of shock. And I think it takes it takes quite a while to to adjust to, to life without them. So what I found was, although I'd had insomnia for about 25 years, uh, my insomnia after these three deaths went into overdrive and my sleep just went out of the window, really. And the insomnia was so bad that I um, I knew that I had two choices. One was to go to my, my doctor, my physician, and say I need sleeping pills. And the other was just to go with the insomnia and see where it might take me. And I didn't want to go down the medication route, as I'd done that before, and I, I didn't want to do it again. And the darkness seemed to be seemed to be sort of calling me in a strange way because my days were very, very busy. Uh, it was COVID. Everybody was at home. My four children were at home. So I was looking after everyone. I was looking after my mother and my stepmother, who were both now bereaved and in isolation. And I thought I was responsible also for all the funerals and the obituaries and informing everyone. And all of the admin that goes with, with 
several deaths. So the days were really busy, and suddenly the nights, although I couldn't sleep, which is you know something that we all sort of fear, the nights sort of opened up for me and became my place of uh, my place of refuge, my sanctuary, my my time to try and process what had happened. Mm-hmm. And so the days after your father's death, uh, you slept at his house, and you were kind of just you know preparing everything and in the book you write that the night after he died you actually slept really well that one night and can you describe that night to us and the feelings that came with it well that was I mean the body is a very strange thing and and sometimes I think the body just does what it needs to do and I clearly needed to sleep so I was not expecting to sleep at all but on the first night after he died I actually had a very good night's sleep and was rather surprised and felt quite guilty about that but that was the only good night for about a year after that so uh maybe i maybe my body was preparing me for what was to come but in the days then that followed i I did i stayed at his house with my stepmother for a while uh and then i moved back into my own home um and in the in the sort of the weeks and months that followed from that point i started to uh, do lots of research into, well, obviously into the grieving brain, but also into the the wide awake at night brain. And I'd noticed that I often felt quite different at night and that the night was um, seemed to be becoming quite a spiritual place because what had happened as part of the grieving process was I had turned off that ruminating voice that many of your listeners will be familiar with. We wake up in the night and we start to fret and we get anxious and we panic and we think, oh, I'm going to look terrible tomorrow and I'm not <laughs> going to be able to give my speech or I'm not going to be able to remember anything. But all of that suddenly seemed very unimportant. Uh, what was important was that I'd lost these loved ones. So the ruminating voice dials right down. And when that quietened, other voices seemed to open up. And I became much more uh, imaginative and more open-minded and more reflective. And at that point, I started reaching out to neuroscientists and sleep scientists to say you know what what is what is happening to my my brain if i feel like i feel like a different person and this version of myself i started to call her my night self and she she took me on a journey that sounds a bit odd but <laughs> she was slightly <laughs> different from my day self and she took me on this journey where i started experimenting with all sorts of things during the night and going out and stargazing and um you know draw, doing doing a lot of creative things that sort of helped me, I think, process the grief in a much more comfortable way. So we have a, someone wrote in with a question. We have a question from Ben that says, insomnia can lead to mental health issues that weren't there before and can go unaddressed. How should people notice this in their friends and loved ones and talk to them about it? That is such a good question. Uh, And one of the things that I, I learned on this sort of journey of mine is that, um, you know, sleep deprivation does really um, sort of mess with your mess with your mind. So I think if you know, if you know what it's doing to your brain, it's much easier than to understand what's happening to you. So one of the things that I learned about the night brain is that that, you know, that ruminative voice, which is often full of remorse and regret and guilt. You know, we lie there going over things and feeling bad. It's partly because at night, the hormones that 
keep us sort of happy and cheerful and energetic during the day, they all slide away. So quite often at, at, and at night when you're awake, you'll think, you think, oh, I feel really bad. I feel really depressed. I feel really sad. But it's actually just that your your sort of your more your sort of slightly happier hormones they've just gone, so you just have to you have to sort of push through to the morning because when the light comes you will start to feel better. But but people with um, mental health problems, absolutely right, have to be very very I think aware of uh, sleeplessness. They're much more mm-hmm. likely to have insomnia. And insomniac people are much more likely to become depressed. So the two are very linked, and it's really important, I think, to be aware of that of that relationship, and and to be respectful of it. Well, we're gonna go ahead and take a break right here. We can talk more about that when we get back. Um, if our guests have a question or comment for, if our listeners have a question or comment for our guests today, you can call in at eight three three eight seven seven eighty two fifty five. That's eight three three TPR Talk. This is the source on Texas Public Radio, and we'll be right back. Support for TPR comes from the Lawton family of restaurants, Cappy's, Cappuccinos, Mama's Cafe, La Fonda on Main, and Jingu House, located in San Antonio. Their diverse menus and hours can be viewed at LawtonRestaurants.com. Welcome back to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla. We're talking with author Annabelle Abstreets about her new book, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night South. What do you do during your sleepless nights? Do you try to fight it or do you give in and get up? Do you give yourself a time limit before you get up? Call in at 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. You can also email us at the source at tpr.org. I want to play a voicemail that we got from one of our listeners. Let's go ahead and listen to that. What I do when I wake up really early and uh, can't go back to sleep, what I choose to do, I, that, it's home for me because I'm up normally at 4.30, uh, leaving the house at a little bit after 5, and starting work at a, at a uh, endoscopy center at 6 a.m., and normally leaving fairly early, too. But uh, the body gets conditioned to waking up really early. So on those days when I am off, but my body still wants to wake up at 4.15, 4.30, that is when I will go ahead and take the dog for a walk, tune on, uh, turn on the radio for your station, of course, or read the newspaper that I may have not had a chance to read the day before, and sometimes even the newspaper for that morning. But uh, there's always things to do, um, you know, dishes that maybe can be unloaded from the dishwasher, things of that nature. It's challenging to find things and then to do things that don't wake up anybody else. That's, that's the big uh, the big Megillah there. And my name is Brad, again. Thank you. So... Annabelle, keeping in line with what the caller in the voicemail said, how did you navigate finding things to do during these sleepless nights that wouldn't wake everyone else up? Yeah, that's such a good point that uh, Brad made because we have to be quiet. And I I liked that. It meant that I couldn't go and start clanking around in the kitchen and (laughs) emptying the bins and unstacking the dishwasher, which, of course, is what I would have done during the day. But because everyone else is sleeping and you don't want to wake them up, it does nudge you into doing more, a slightly more, for me anyway, slightly more imaginative things. So a lot of the people I spoke to would, would, do, would journal, they would write, they would draw and sketch, some would paint, some would stargaze, get their binoculars out and, and look at the stars. Some, lots of people read and listen to podcasts. 
some listen to the radio very quietly and of course some people now composers because you can have headphones you can do all your composing and playing your instruments through your headphones so so for a lot of people it's a really creative time partly because there's no distractions and partly because your brain is just slightly rewired and it is a little bit more imaginative um so that's a it's a good question but it is a great time to do something for yourself because there's no one else saying, you know, do this, do that. Your boss isn't on the phone. There's no one emailing you. So it's a lovely time to just do something that you want to do uh, and that no one else can stop you doing. Yeah, I think for sure. I, you know, even in my own sleepless, my experience with sleepless nights, I find that I tend to be, I tend to lean towards more creative things to do. Um, and so could you talk a little bit more about what scientists have discovered about the way our brains and bodies work differently at night? Yeah, so what they've discovered is that the night brain is much more creative. The part of our brain that likes to keep everything in order, likes to assess and judge it's called the prefrontal cortex, and it sits just behind the forehead. And, and I think of it as the command and control center. And that's really where your, you know, your inner critic sits, telling you, oh, you can't do that. You're no good at drawing. You're no good at designing. You're no good at writing. But at night, that bit of the brain is tired and, and pretty much goes to sleep. So uh, what scientists have discovered is that without that inner critic telling you, you can't do this and you can't do that, and that's no good, we feel much more emboldened and much more liberated, really, when we try and do something. So I will often write lyrics and poems, which I would never do during the day, because during the day, my brain would say, that's such a waste of time. That's not at all productive. You're no good of that. Uh, that's not your thing. But at night, that, that voice isn't telling me anything. So I just sort of sit and scribble away by candlelight. And I find it, I find it very, uh, well, very liberating, actually. So in your book, you also talk about this idea of how private darkness belongs to women, but public darkness belongs to men. Could you talk more about that? And your book also is really uh, kind of comes from like the female perspective. And this is kind of a story about how women also could find uh, empowerment in this private darkness. Yeah, so historically, the night was often the only time that women had to do anything for themselves because their days were just full of chores. You know, there were no washing machines, <laughs> there were no microwaves, <laughs> uh, everything had to be grown and washed and cooked and everything from hand. So their days were really, really busy. So when they couldn't sleep at night, there were a large contingent of women who would pray. There was a lot of praying going on. And I, I found this from reading you know, hundreds and hundreds of letters and journals. So a lot of women would pray. They found it a very spiritual time when they felt closer to God. But then there was another sort of group of women who would use that time to do something for themselves. And quite often that was, uh, you know, it might be embroidery, it could be writing, it could be um, painting, watercoloring, uh, it could be drawing, it could be pottering around in their gardens. So it seemed to be a, a time that many women carved out for themselves. And they didn't worry about not getting enough sleep in the way that we do because they, don't, they didn't know all of the things that we are constantly <laughs> told. Like if we don't get eight hours sleep, you know, we will definitely get dementia, <laughs> we will probably die quite early. They didn't have any of those headlines. So for them, it was a perfectly, uh, perfectly rational thing to do. But also in the past, we know that people often slept in two chunks. They would talk about in their diaries, talk about a first sleep and a second sleep. 
So they'd have their first sleep. And then a lot of people would be awake for a couple of hours in the night and often doing things like visiting neighbours and having a cup of tea. And we find this in their diaries. And it, it, it sort of it feels very odd when we're reading that. But it shows us, I think, that that was a pattern of sleep that many of our ancestors were perfectly comfortable with. And, and perhaps we should be more comfortable with it, too. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you, you know, to know that context of the nighttime was a private space for women because, you know, they had to, they had all these duties during the day. And now I want to go to a caller. We have uh, Kathy on the line. And Kathy, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, yes. Um, I have the same problem, insomnia. Um, but I, and as the previous caller said, praying is one of the things you do. Well, as Catholics, we pray the rosary, which takes 15 to 20 minutes, depending on how fast you say it. And I can honestly tell you, I rarely, if, I mean, once in a blue moon, do I actually get through a whole rosary before I'm asleep. And it totally takes off the worries about tomorrow or the problems I've had today in my life. It's just a beautiful way to, to fall asleep. All right. Well, thank you so much for that, uh, Kathy. I think, you know, people can definitely, everyone has their, their thing. I think that's a wonderful thing uh, that you have. And I'm glad it puts you to sleep. Uh, do you want to respond to that? Annabelle? Oh, yes, I do. Thank you so much, <laughs> Kathy. One of the things I researched was the, the sleep, the nights of, of monks and nuns. So for hundreds of years, the monks and nuns followed the canonical hours, which any Catholic will know about. And the most important service, so canonical hours are, are sort of praying really every three hours, but the most important of all the services was matins, which is at 3 a.m. And that was the longest service and the nuns often reported feeling, you know, that was the service where they felt closest to God. And I, I love that. I often thought I often thought about the nuns praying. Most monasteries and convents don't do that anymore because they've been urged, you know, I think I've been told that it's not it's not good for their for their health. But for hundreds of years they, they were praying like that and I I love that image. And so, Annabelle, how has your relationship with the darkness changed? You write that you used to be afraid of it, but now it holds you and it gives you space. So how has that become a part of your life? Well, when I was a child, I was very frightened of the dark. And I think this is very, very common. In fact, I read a study the other day that said one in 10 people, even now, are too frightened to leave their bedroom to go to the bathroom at night. So that fear of darkness, I think, is still with us. And it's clearly something that was evolutionary because there were there were predators outside, outside of our cave. And, you know, we could easily slip. People couldn't swim. So uh, if you slipped into a, a, a river, you could be you know drowned and washed away. So there are a lot of dangers that came with night for our distant ancestors. Of course, most of those dangers have now gone, but our, our primeval brain is still telling us night is a, a frightening time and encouraging us to stay in. So I sort of had to face my fears really in baby steps. It was bit by bit. So I started off literally just looking out the window. Then I would go out into the garden. Then I'd stand on my doorstep for a bit. Then I'd go into the garden. So night after night, I would just try and push myself a little bit further away from my comfort zone, which of course was my home and and all the lights. And I would always go out with no no flashlight, no head torch. Uh, and eventually, I was I was walking. I would do quite long walks at night, 
at sort of 2 a.m., 3 a.m. And I grew to absolutely love them. It was a very, very magical time underneath the stars. I often felt much closer to my father and to the, the people I'd lost. So it was a, a time for me to reconnect, not only with the people I'd lost, but also with the with the darkness and with the night. And um, now I'm not now I'm not frightened at all of the dark, but I think a lot of people are. Yeah, and so I'm curious: um, is the idea of the night self something that you've taught to your children, or as a mom, do you just kind of tell them, "Please go to sleep"? <laughs> all all mothers want their children to be asleep. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely don't want them up and about, especially not if it's our special time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we know that sleep's really important for. Uh, for children and for teenagers you know they need a lot of sleep even though they're sleeping on a slightly different shift and I would have strange occasions where you know I would wake up at 2 a.m and I would come downstairs and start doing my my night my night adventures and you know my 18 year old daughter would come in having just got back from a club and we were just in these sort of parallel universes experiencing <laughs> the night and the darkness in very different ways um but 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 the night in the city for women is very different from the night in in a safe part of the country. Mm-hmm. So most of the women I spoke to were not comfortable going out in the into in the city on their own in the middle of the night. But a lot of them were certainly comfortable going into their gardens and looking up at the stars and the moon. So can you describe uh, your night self to us? How would you describe her? Oh, that's a very good question. I would describe her as. Um, Definitely creative and imaginative and definitely more open-minded than I am during the day. Uh, also a little bit more reckless <laughs> and slightly, um, I, I would use the word whimsical. You know, the way that one thinks is, is slightly, it's just slightly different. I think if, you, if, if someone would, would just start writing, for example, journaling in the middle of the night, and then if they looked at it the next day, they would probably find that what they had written was different. And sometimes you always you can't always put your finger on it. But it's just seeing things in a slightly different way, perhaps because the, the brain has rewired. But the, the recklessness is widely documented by scientists. So um, for uh, smokers, for example, if they're awake at night, that is often the first time for reformed smokers, the night Insomniac night is the first time that they might light a cigarette, having given up. So, And for people who are dieting, they might be perfectly good during the day, but come the night, if they're awake at night, they are much more likely then to, to go, go to the fridge and, and sort of break the diet. So we're, less, we're, less, we're less, slightly less controlled, I think, in the night. We're a bit more at the, at the mercy of our, of our, our bodies, and, and what the body sometimes wants to do, whether that's, you know, have a cigarette when, when we've given up or have a drink when we've given up. So I think if you're just aware that, that at the night, you know, during the night, you're, you're not as self-disciplined and you're not quite as buttoned up and controlled, um, then you can, you can work with that. Because that's also, the, that's also the other side of being more imaginative and open-minded, really, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I think that's, that's interesting to hear. And I think that makes sense that you're kind of, you know, you're more creative, you're more open at night, but you're also more likely to 
break these rules that you have made for yourself. Um, but we're going to go ahead and take a break right here. And if you have a question or comment for our guest today about how she's found empowerment in those restless nights, call in at 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. You can also email us at thesource at tpr.org. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio, and we'll be right back. I'm Tanya Mosley. And I'm Juana Summers. People collect all sorts of things. Sports memorabilia, stamps and antique lamps. If you've collected a few classic cars over the years and you also love public radio, consider this. Donate it to this station and it could mean hundreds of dollars in support. Donate online at tpr.careasy.org or call 877-486-1227. You're listening to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla, in for David Martin Davies. With us today is author Annabelle Ab-Streets. Her new book is Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self. You can call in with your experience at 833-877-8255. That's 833-TPR-TALK. And you can also email us at thesource at tpr.org. I want to play another voicemail that we got from a listener that I think is really insightful. And we can go ahead and give it a listen right now. You know, actually, when I decided to quit trying to convince myself not to get up in the middle of the night, I found it really works really well for me. Um, I have a traumatic brain injury from um, an assault that occurred when I was uh, very young. And then for 27 years now, I've had disabling physical injuries. And I was told by my doctors for the first three years that I was in therapy after this motor vehicle collision, which was in 1997, that I probably would never be able to sleep for more than 30 minutes at the time. And I just uh, really struggled with that. And now I have senior dogs at my house, and I find working from home um, and doing a lot of volunteer work, I just started allowing myself to purge. Uh, You know, I wake up because your brain is always trying to come up with solve problems and things. And when I wake up, I I tell the senior dogs to go outside so that they can sleep (laughs) through the night and that I don't keep waking up every time they move, knowing that their bladders may not make it through the night. Um, And and that when they're able to tell me they need to go outside, it it doesn't always uh, give me a lot of time to get to the door. Uh, so I just get up, and uh, for about two hours every night, I purge whatever my mind's come up with that I need to be doing and get that all off my mind. And when I go back to sleep, uh, we all just rest so well. It's, it's, I'm still challenged because uh, by those expectations that you get up early and all the things that people say about rising early. But, you know, realistically, this is my, what I have in my life. And my life is better for just accepting uh, this is how I can work with my disabilities and my senior dogs can um, be healthier and um, I just have to go with it. Thank you so much for even thinking to talk about that. So thank you so much to the person that sent us that voicemail. It's an incredible story and we really do wish you the best. And Annabelle, can I get your initial reaction to hearing that? Yeah, I think I think that's 
so important not to worry and not to stress and not to become anxious about being awake in the night. And I, my own concern is that there are a lot of people now who are wearing sleep trackers and who are you know, seeing the headlines and thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, if I don't have my eight hours straight through, there must be something wrong with me. <laughs> and uh, over here in the UK, certainly a lot of people now are going to doctors with their sleep trackers and saying, I'm, my, my, sleep tells, my tracker tells me I'm not getting the right sort of sleep. And these people are being called, you know, the worried well by doctors. They're taking up a lot of time in the, <laughs> in the consultancy room. And doctors are saying, yeah, this, you're, you're, if you feel okay, you are okay. You know, don't, don't, judge your, don't judge yourself by your sleep tracker. So I think it's really important to uh, get rid of the anxiety. And the other really good point that your caller made was that we generally, when we wake up, we often wake up because there is something, and it can be very small. There is something on our mind, and our, our, our mind knows this. Uh, and although we're not always aware that there's something on our mind, when we wake up, if we start just journaling, just writing things down, whatever it is that's woken us up, which can be just, as, you know, just worry, we can be worried about, our, I don't know, worried about your grandmother or worried about your child. You know, you can just have something on your mind. Uh, once you start writing, it sort of, it sort of goes out onto the page. You know, you release it and then it's not in your mind and then it's much easier to return to sleep. And that was certainly what I found was that when I started getting up and doing things, whether that was you know, nipping out for a walk or, or writing or sketching, that I would always go back to sleep. Whereas if I lay there and started to, you know, toss and turn and get cross and panic about the next day, then I didn't go back to sleep. So, so your call is absolutely spot on, I think, there. Well, she also mentioned something that caught my attention, and she said that for her, she would, you know, stay awake for two hours. And in my head, at least, when I think of sleepless nights, I, you know, it's really dramatic. I always think of, like, being awake for eight hours. But my own sleepless nights are actually only a few hours as well. And so I'm curious how long, what is a sleepless night to you? How long does that last? Well, when I was in you know, in the middle of the worst part of my insomnia, it was probably maybe three, four, five hours awake. And then sometimes I'd go back to sleep, but sometimes it was morning, so I would get up. Now I I sleep much better, but if I do wake, I'm usually awake for about two hours. It's very strange. It's literally about, I mean, you could probably just set a timer. It seems to be pretty much always about two hours, which is just long enough for me to, you know, just, I, I, usually, I usually lie there for about 20 or 30 minutes in case I'm going to sleep within 20 to 30 minutes. Then I will get up and go to another room and I might have a, a little cup of tea and I might get my notebook out and start writing. I, I don't turn the lights on. I'm really strict about just keeping the lights, either, well, keeping them off actually and just I just have a candle. Um, but I, it's funny you should say that, Kayla, because there's something about that two-hour window and that also was the amount of time typically... If you look back at our ancestors who slept in two chunks, it also seemed to be about two hours that they were awake. So it's possible that uh, if you, an, evolution, an evolutionary biologist would say that when we were cave, cave people uh, and we slept around a fire, that there probably would always have been a shift system and there probably would always have been someone awake for two hours at a slot, yes, a two-hour slot to watch for uh, enemies, predators, you know, storms rolling in, whatever it was. 
So I think I think you're right. I think there's something about about that little two hour window. It sort of <laughs> seems to be ingrained in us. Well, Annabelle, I'm curious. Have you ever had nights where you're like? Okay, yeah, I wrote this book about how sleepless nights can be empowering, but I really do have to get some sleep tonight. I'll be empowered another night. Do you ever get frustrated? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Sometimes there are nights where I think, oh, really? I don't <laughs> want to hang out with my night self tonight. You know, yeah. I just want to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I like, what I find comforting is knowing that, um, you know, that that's fine too. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And sometimes at night we're frustrated because our, our brain, our brain, again, is inclined to make us feel a little bit angry. So people people tend to be, if you look at um, certain studies, and certainly they looked at spikes of Twitter, Twitter rage, and they found, and they being groups of psychologists who were studying this, they found that Twitter rage you know, spiked in the middle of the night. 2 a.m. was when the most angry people were the most angry on, on X, I should say X, shouldn't I? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think there does seem to be some sort of circadian rhythm to anger as well. And again, that's probably because we're just not quite so self-controlled in the night. I want to go to another caller. We have Norma on the line. And Norma, go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I'm really enjoying this very, very much. I've always had sleep problems, which seem to have been transferred to my daughter and my grandson. But in the middle of the night, I would wake up and I would paint uh, like a kitchen. And the kids would wake up and say, oh, my gosh, you know, today it's blue. And uh, or uh, we had an outdoor pool and I would go out in the middle of the night with a spotlight on. And then I would uh, clean out the pool and do that kind of stuff. And I was teaching full time. But now I see that my daughter, who also has the sleep issues, uh, she has her own method and uh, she keeps herself busy. Incredibly so. Uh, she teaches full time at an elementary school. She's teaching two college classes in the evenings. She's working on a dissertation. And she has uh, a teenager who on occasion will say, Mom, can I get some pet pets? And so, you know, she goes and gives them pet pets. And that's her way of working through the sleep problems. Now, my grandson, I'm not quite sure how he's going to deal with it because he can be up till 5 o'clock in the morning and, you know, then sleep half of a day and then he's up and around. So... Uh, I am curious as to what you do when it's a generational thing. What do you suggest? Well, Norma, thank you so much for that call. That's a really excellent question. Uh, Annabelle, do you want to answer that? Yes, I do. So about, I think it's about 60% of insomniacs have a gene that predisposes them to not sleep so well. So I have it too. My father didn't sleep very well. My grandmother didn't sleep very well. She was always up and about in the night cleaning. <laughs> so it's definitely, it sounds as though in your family, Norma, it's, it's a, it is a genetic thing. Uh, and I think that you and your, your daughter sounds extraordinary, but you've clearly both found ways of accommodating it into your life. So you're working with it rather than becoming, made, you know, rather than being made anxious by it, which is fantastic. So for your so for your grandson, I imagine he, I don't know how old he is, but if, he, if he's a teenager, uh, he will be sleeping on a slightly different clock. So teenagers tend to go to sleep much later, uh, although 5 a.m. is pretty late. They tend to go to sleep later and get up later. So he may just be in that phase of, um, of, of his sort of sleep cycle. 
Uh, but he will have to do what you and your daughter have done, which is find a way to to work with it uh, rather than battling it. I think the most important thing is is not to not to fight it because if it is genetic, you're, you're not going to get anywhere. But the other interesting thing is that there are genetically people who are short sleepers and long sleepers. So there are people who get by on very well on six hours and there are people who absolutely need 10 or 12 hours. So it may be that that Norma's also from a family of short sleepers where they can they can just cope with it. Uh, and that is, that, is, that is a good thing. Because if you can't cope with it, I think that's when the problem starts. All right, well, it's time for another break. Uh, you can call in with your questions or comments for our guest today at 833-877-8255. This is The Source on Texas Public Radio, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla. We're talking about what to do about those long, sleepless nights where every second can feel dreadful. Our guest today is Annabelle Abstreets, who is author of the book Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self. And Annabelle, can I just say that sometimes when I stay up, it's because my brain is really excited about a new creative writing idea that I have, or it comes up with a new story idea, or questions for an interview, or... You know, when you have a crush on someone new and you can't, you can't sleep sometimes, I mean, there could be some really positive reasons why you can't sleep, right? It doesn't always have to be so dreadful. No, that's right. I think often we're awake because we are buzzing with ideas and we need to you know, either think about those ideas or process them or get them down or sort them out. So I think when that happens, you know, we just have to go with it. Um, because we, um, yeah, because it's such a great time also to then uh, explore your ideas or or try new th- or try new things out that perhaps you wouldn't normally try. Um, so yes, I I would agree with you. So I'm curious, how much of this book that you wrote was written by your night self? Uh, that's a very good question, actually. I wrote quite. I often wrote at night when I was stuck. So when I was stuck during the day. And I'd come to a bit of an impasse and I just couldn't work out, you know, what what order, where to go next, really. Then I would think, OK, I'm just going to park that and I'm going to look at it when I wake up in the night. And then when I woke up, usually sort of 2 or 3 a.m., I would think back to that problem. And I would quite often come up with a solution immediately, you know, literally just like that. The answer would just sort of think, you know, sort of fall from from the sky, if you like. <laughs> And I would quickly go and, and, and jot it all down. So what I do now is if I'm uh, writing during the day and I get stuck, perhaps it's something to do with the plot not working or something to do with the characters not working or just the structure of it isn't working. Instead of wrestling with it, I'll put it on one side and think, OK, when I wake up in the night, I'll have a look at that. And so it's there waiting for me. If I don't wake up, that's a, a bit of a problem. But if I do wake up, you know, I'll go and look at it and Without really thinking, without sitting down and concentrating, I seem to be able to just uh, sort it out straight away. It's very, very strange. I think it's just a different different part of the brain is looking at it in the night with, with different eyes and a different perspective. Um, so that's a, I think it's a really good thing to sometimes to keep your problems, but, but not emotional problems. I think it needs to be 
you know, sort of something that's not going to cause you any uh, anguish or anxiety. So if it's an emotional problem, I would definitely leave that for the day. (laughs) But if it's a creative problem, I would definitely leave that for the night. I think that's really great advice, actually. I'm going to take that. But since you've had this uh, self-discovery journey, does grief or feelings of sadness affect you in the same way? Or how has that relationship changed since you've kind of embraced these sleepless nights? Well, I think that um, I now see the, the, the gift of night and the gift of darkness and the gift of the whole journey. I sort of see that as being... Um, my father's legacy to me, if you like. It, it feels mm. like it, it's the gift he left for me that I, that I didn't know he was leaving for me uh, because we can't predict any, we can't just, we just don't know what's going to happen when we lose someone that we, we dearly love. We we don't really know, do we, how we're going to be a year on or two years on. I mean, it took me two years really to realise that what he had left me was an extraordinary gift and something that I will treasure. Along with all my memories of him, he's also helped me uh, indirectly to become much more comfortable in darkness and more comfortable with the night and to discover to discover this sort of night self who has, um, you know, ha- helps me, has, has produced a whole book of poems, which I won't publish because they're, they're not for the world, they're just for me. Uh-huh. It, it, she's made, she's written all these funny little lyrics that, you know, they're just for me. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> but I, I see it like that. I see it as a sort of a legacy, if you like. Mm-hmm. Well, can I just say that I think there are times in all of our lives when we're going through something difficult And maybe we're scared to be alone and, you know, we're especially scared to be alone at night because it feels extra lonely and it's dark. But your book really gives so much hope that during these sleepless nights, we can choose to be introspective and reclaim this time for ourselves. And I just want to thank you for that and also ask, uh, what words do you have for people who are struggling with loneliness and sleeplessness and being afraid of the feelings that come up during these hours? I think the first thing I would say is that when you wake at night, you do feel you do feel alone. You think you're the only person awake at night. So the first thing I would say is that, you know, one in five Americans have, has got insomnia, according to studies. So, you know, 20% of America is awake with you when you wake up. So you're definitely not alone. If you go out into the garden or you look out of the window or open a window, you will also hear that there is a whole different world that is awake out there. So I think something like 60% of mammals are nocturnal, something like 90% of insects are nocturnal, many birds are nocturnal. So it feels a lonely time, but actually you're not remotely alone. It's just that everything is sort of quiet. <laughs> and, you know, you can hear, you can hear owls and you see glowworms and, and moths. So, so there's a lot happening. So the loneliness is um, a slight misperception. So the first thing is just tell yourself, actually, you're not alone. There are lots of people wandering around, making a cup of tea, doing their sketching, doing their writing. Uh, and then the second thing I think I would say is, is, is to do something creative, because then you also will not feel either scared or alone. And in fact, curiosity really is, is the sort of the antidote to um, rumination and loneliness so, so just becoming curious about the night stops you feeling frightened of the night stops you feeling lonely and uh, I think 
make, makes the nighttime a, a much more enjoyable experience. So, you know, start looking up at the stars and working out the constellations. You know, what, what is that star up there and what phase is, what phase is the moon in? And become curious about the night, and I think I think that would be a, a really good way to to feel much more connected to everything else that's happening out there in the night, and and far less alone, and less anxious, and less fearful. Yeah, I really love the way you put that. You know, when you think you're alone, but realistically, especially if you wake up, you know, in the earlier hours of the day, there's people getting getting ready. There's people, you know they're up, they're making their coffee, they're getting ready for their day. So I don't think you could ever truly be alone. Um, and I think this highlights why this book is so important because for some, sleepless nights are rare, but when they come, you know, they're an inconvenience. And for others, this is their life and they have to learn how to manage like you did. And I'm curious, have you had reactions to your book from other insomniacs? What have people been saying? Yes, yes, lots of lots of insomniacs have come out of the <laughs> woodwork. I think it's you know often we're we're made to feel uh, slightly slightly ashamed. Well, we're not really ashamed, but we're made we're made to feel as though it's an ill a sort of bit of an illness. You know, you're you're spoken of as being a bad sleeper uh, and and someone who isn't sleeping properly, and that's just not that's just not the case actually. We're not, it's not that we're bad sleepers or we're not sleeping properly. We're just sleeping in our own funny patterns. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, I think we just need to yeah, understand that everyone sleeps differently and uh, people have different sleep requirements. And some people are night owls and some people are larks. And we just need to be perhaps more forgiving of people with slightly different sleep patterns. And of course, the way that society is set up isn't very conducive to that. You know, most businesses want you to be <laughs> to be at work at certain hours. Mm -hmm. um, but if you can, if, and also to understand this, understand sleep deprivation a bit as well. So, so know that if you're going to be doing something the next day, know that if you haven't had much sleep, that and the next day, you'll, you've got to drive somewhere. If you're not comfortable with that, so I, I never drove when I was really, really tired. Mm -hmm. uh, I would, you know, take a bus or a taxi or get someone to drive me. But just to sort of be aware that if you're very sleep deprived, sometimes, uh, you know, you will feel more emotional. You might be a bit more snappy. You might feel more inclined to cry. You might not be able to concentrate quite so well on things. And if you can, try and factor You can have a little nap or... Uh, you know, get outside and have a have a walk in the fresh air because that also will sort of perk you up a bit. So just sort of understanding how you yourself respond to not having quite enough sleep for those for those tricksy days. Well, I think the kind of one of the big themes of your book is just radical acceptance. And instead of wishing that you weren't wide awake in the moment um, or wishing that you had different sleep patterns, uh, it's important to accept that your body and your brain, that's kind of just where they're at right now. And I think so much of, as you mentioned earlier, so much of the suffering from these sleepless nights comes from the idea of thinking about tomorrow. How is this going to affect me tomorrow? Am I going to bring my best self? How did you learn to let that idea go, Annabelle, and just kind of embrace embrace the night? Well, there were two things, actually, <laughs> that, that taught me really powerful lessons. The first was, uh, I remember many, many years ago, I was given, I had to give a big talk, and it was 
I was quite young. It was the first time I'd given a big talk to, I don't know, not, not that big, but maybe I had to give a talk to 40 people in the evening. I was so nervous about this talk. I was back in my 20s. that I did not sleep all night, not for one minute. And in the morning, I sort of got up and thought, oh, I'm just going to, this, this presentation is going to be awful. I won't remember a single word. I'll, you know, I'll fluff my lines. It's just going to be terrible. And I sort of pushed through the still dreading this talk. And then, of course, I gave the talk, and it was absolutely fine. Nothing went wrong. Every word came out perfectly. And I always hung on to that memory that actually you can you can push through. Perhaps not, you know, night after night after night, but certainly for, you know, one night you can push through. Another thing I learned was um, yoga, to do yoga nidra at night, which is a just a resting exercise, uh, and it, it really helps. All right. Well, Annabelle Abstreets is the author of the new book, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self. And Annabelle, it was such a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for opening up all of our perspectives. Thank you so much for having me on your show. This has been The Source on Texas Public Radio. I'm Kayla Padilla, in for David Martin Davies. Thank you so much for listening. This has been The Source on Texas Public Radio. The Source is hosted and produced by David Martin Davies. Kayla Padilla is our booking and engagement producer. Engineering support from Ruben Garcia, Jesse Reeves, and Steve Short. Dan Katz is TPR's Vice President of News. The Source is made possible with support from the Gladys and Ralph Lazarus Foundation. 